Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, WPLN News released the first story in our reporting project on the rising of cost of living in Nashville. The series begins with a look at how one family was displaced from their Dickerson Pike mobile park home. Housing is an issue affecting all of us. But for our immigrant and refugee communities, one local advocate calls it, says it's causing a second displacement. Those among us who have already uprooted their lives to come here often have to do it all over again when prices and development drives them out. Later in the show, we'll meet an Afghan refugee who was recently resettled here and hear from advocates on how affordable housing crisis ripples into all aspects of life, like education and health care. But first... Last night, Politico published a draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court. The opinion shows that the court has voted to strike down the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which guaranteed abortion rights at the federal level. Assuming that nothing changes in the final draft, this opinion has massive national implications, including for Tennessee. Our state is among just two dozen states where abortion will become illegal if this opinion becomes law. And we plan to follow up on this issue in the coming weeks, and we want to hear from you. So leave us a voice message at thisisnashville.org. But joining us now to round up everything we know now about what happens next is WPLN health reporter Blake Farmer. Blake, welcome back. Thanks, Khalil. So obviously we have to wait to see if this draft is final, but it seems somewhat clear that Roe will be overturned. If that's the case, what happens here? Well, well, you're right uh, to say that we've got to see what happens in the final draft. But, um, you know, folks who follow the U.S. Supreme Court closely say there there is sometimes negotiation that occurs after these drafts first circulate. And, of course, they usually don't circulate in the public like this. Um, that could be a month or two before we, we hear what, what's final. But if this ruling were final today, the Tennessee attorney general would then have to decide that the state's abortion ban was triggered by the ruling, uh, and it looks like it would be. Then there is a 30-day period before the, the state's ban would actually take effect. What's up with the waiting period? Well, uh, of the uh, about a dozen states with similar laws to Tennessee, not all have this waiting period, and some have waiting periods just shorter. The idea is that Tennessee um, would allow for legal challenges that'll almost certainly come from abortion rights advocates. Abortion opponents, when they crafted the state's trigger law, as it's called, uh, this was uh, just a few years ago, it essentially accounted for the immediate court battle that that would follow. This way, it's not like abortions are banned immediately when the ruling comes out, but then maybe, you know, paused by a court a few days later. So let's say this trigger law works according to plan for abortion opponents in Tennessee. Is it really a total ban? You know, it's not total, but it's about as close as you could get. The only exception written into the law is if the abortion is needed to save the life of the mother or um, if if they could suffer serious injury from carrying the child to term. So there's no exception for rape or incest, which are, have, were pretty common in, in um, other uh, attempts to ban abortions. Um, there's also no allowance for abortions even in you know the very first few weeks of pre- pregnancy. So effectively a total ban. Can you give us an idea of how many pregnancies are terminated each year in Tennessee? 
Yeah, I was I was looking at some of this this morning. The state started tracking it uh, about as close as they could in 2008. And since then, the number of abortions has dropped dramatically by more than a third. Abortion opponents actually take credit for this due to their restrictions like waiting periods and, and other things they've, they've put on abortion rules in Tennessee. The latest data we have is from 2019 at this point. And at that, uh, in 2019, there were roughly 8,700 terminated pregnancies in Tennessee. Hmm. Well, what else do we know about those getting abortions in state? You know, you you look at uh, some of the data, they tend to be in their 20s and unmarried, um, considerably higher rates of abortions for black women. And among Hispanic women, the rates are somewhat higher. But, you know, this is an issue that affects everyone. Anyone in childbearing years gets abortions, could be a very young teenager or someone in their 40s concerned about a high risk pregnancy. So how are Tennessee's abortion providers responding to this? Well, they knew a ban was a possibility, um, but you know, not a whole lot is in point uh, in place at this point. But looking to Texas is pretty instructive since they have the state's most restrictive abortion law at the moment. Um, I actually was in Austin over the weekend at a conference of healthcare journalists, and we heard from um, one provider that actually built an abortion clinic near the airport in Minneapolis. Um, she was calling Minnesota this safe haven state, and. You know, much of the strategy for abortion access is going to be about travel, which is why they put this clinic next to the airport. Of course, it's complicated. Um, you know, what about single mothers with with other kids? Uh, how do they leave them at home while they go uh, hop on a plane, even if someone else is paying their airfare? They talked about how many of their patients had never even been on a plane before. And having to line up travel just pushes the procedure to later in pregnancy, which can lead to more complications. Mm. You know, the last time you were on the show, you talked about how medication abortions now represent a majority of abortions. Is there still access to abortion pills? Well, there, there wouldn't be in Tennessee. Um, the legislature actually strengthened a law that bans telemedicine abortions for just this reason as well. Um, so it, it made it so that the doctor actually has to hand you the medication, which could happen today, um, and it, it would be illegal to send it to someone in the mail, let's say. But um, it's unclear that this would, pr if this would prevent what other states are trying to do um, as they've been sort of setting up for this situation where Roe versus Wade might be overturned. They've actually been trying to open access to telemedicine abortions. Um, now, uh, Tennessee is trying to keep it so you couldn't get a telemedicine uh, abortion prescription from an out-of-state doctor. But, um, it, you know, it, it's clear that even parts of the federal government, including the FDA, seem to be behind expanding this access to abortion medication. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you could probably count on other legal battles ahead on several fronts. So, obviously, this wouldn't take effect for a few months. But... What coverage can we expect next? Well, uh, in the near term, as in in the next uh, few minutes, we're, we're going to hear from Planned Parenthood of Tennessee. Um, and there are so many angles on the horizon. But I'll say, uh, ultimately, at, at the core of all these stories, uh, we, I, I, am looking to tell the stories of uh, people that really help eliminate the choices folks face when they're pregnant. So um, I'm all ears. That's WPLN health reporter Blake Farmer. Blake, thanks for joining us, my friend. You're welcome. As I said before, we plan to follow up on this issue in the coming weeks, and we want to hear from you. So leave us a voice message at thisisnashville.org. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll pivot to housing. How has one recently resettled Afghan refugee navigated finding a place to call home here in Nashville? And have you struggled with finding affordable, stable housing? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. I'm sure when it, co- it comes as no surprise that housing is a major concern for Nashvillians right now. In our community engagement work for the show, we've been asking, what issues matter to you? Affordable housing has easily risen to the top. That's why we've been digging in. We've tagged along with folks applying for Section 8 housing and talked about how hard it is for musicians to afford to live in Music City. And today, WPLN News kicked off the first in a series of stories dedicated to the issue. Producer Alexis Marshall reported on how the housing market is hitting our immigrant communities especially hard. She spoke with a recent guest of ours, Sabina Moyhudin, from the American Muslim Advisory Council. Sabina has helped resettle newly arrived Afghan refugees. She says that high rents make it more difficult to place these families in central locations that are near one another, which can make accessing services and feeling at home much more difficult. When you're living in a place where there aren't any other Afghans in the school system or the only few, you know, very few, if any others in your school, then that becomes just harder to navigate, especially if you don't know the language, don't know the culture. Mohyuddin says being in Nashville gives new arrivals greater access to places of worship and international markets. But it goes deeper than that. You know, the same things you or I might feel when we're far away from family and friends, that you feel a bit of isolation, especially being new here and the traumatic situation in which they left. My next guest knows all about this. Esmatullah Hananzi recently resettled here from Afghanistan, and he joins me now. Esmatullah, welcome to This is Nashville. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, thank you for calling me. Thank you for being here, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Also with us is Salim Tahiri, co-founder of Tennessee Resettlement Aid. Salim, welcome back. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Thank you again. As Esmatella, you know, tell us what was your experience when? What was it like when you first arrived here? Uh, so, uh, thank you so much again. Uh, first arriving, my I, I was arrived uh, on seven of October to the Philadelphia Airport in the Pennsylvania. Then uh, they resettlement us to the Virginia and the Fort Fickett camp for two months. They did our uh, uh, document works there. Uh, when they're done, they, then they send us to the Nashville, to the Tennessee Nashville. Just we are spending like two months in hotel for the, just we are waiting for the house. Uh, it was very hard for us. We are spending two months in the camp and then we are spending two months here in the hotel because uh, nobody was give us the house. They 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 asking about the credit story. They asking about the uh, lots of things, which is we didn't have it at the time mm-hmm. because we are new here. If we don't have a work, we we don't did any jobs. How you make our credit story? Uh, so that's all. Now I'm resettlement at the house. I'm very happy. Uh, so the Catholic charity they are help us and also the TRA, uh, TR, uh, especially like the KT Pan and uh, Mr. Salim. 
they are uh, try to help us still and they, in the past also they are did the lots of help with us so i like to ta- i would like to thanks from all of them thank you hmm. now what did the resettlement agencies tell you about finding a place to live uh, so actually they try to find the house but they also tell us uh, the house owners are uh, asking about the credit story uh, which is we didn't have it because we if, if you don't have a work here if you don't have a work experience here you don't have a credit story uh, they say like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah so from what i understand the agency placed you and your family in clarksville which is pretty far away from a lot of the resources here in nashville how did that affect you in your transition uh, yeah actually i was rejected that one also because i was asking from the other people who are living here before like in the you see, I like to spend us 10 or 8 years here. I was asked about that. Uh, if I go there in the class week, how I can spend the time over there or no. They, they, they give me the advice, no. Reject that one because it's too far. You, know, you don't have a car. You don't have a transportation. You don't have any access to the uh, your daily life. Uh, when I was reject, reject that one, then Catholic Charity told me, you have to be fine house for your house, uh, for yourself, your own in Nashville, if you want and mm-hmm. your own choice. Uh, but I'm very happy to be uh, from the from the local people here. And they are help me a lot of, like especially, I like to uh, say like her name is uh, Chris. She was trying to help me. She was find that house for me. And then uh, she called me, can you come see the house? When I was at the house, then we are speak with the owner. Uh, but owner didn't understand that they're in the house for who. He was also asking for the uh, credit story. Then I told him, I am new here. I don't have any credit story. And I, I, I was lose my family in Afghanistan. I lose my car. I lose my house. I lose my everything because I was working there with the Americans. Mm-hmm. So now you have to be help me in these things. Then he said, oh, it's okay. Uh, I didn't need for any credit story. You can come to my house. Yeah. Salim, tell me, what stands out to you about Esmatala's experience? Uh, yeah, when uh, when he came in first and uh, he was in a hotel, I reached out to him and he, uh, there was a lot of uh, issues with the housing that he was talking to me, having a family here and having no credit history and sending these guys outside of Nashville. That was a very challenging thing. Uh, then I reached out and I told him, no, we will help you with whatever is possible. And we reached out also to to caseworker to just help him uh, uh, with the housing inside uh, Nashville. We did have uh, one other client uh, who was reset out in Clarksville. Uh, he was a lot of uh, under a lot of pressure and a lot of issues there. But luckily that uh, the resettlement agency moved them back to Nashville. So uh, the challenges that uh, is being faced uh, to them is with the first time uh, or they faced was the having no credit history and resettling them uh, to a house. If a major family was there, uh, the issue was and is that a family of 10, they would divide it to two or three apartments, which make no sense to be honest, because uh, the kids should go to one apartment, the parents live in another apartment and the kids are under 18. 
So those type of thing also happened with uh, Ismat, and we were just trying to help as much as we could to 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 find him a house or to to talk to the caseworkers to just uh, keep him uh, happy and inside Nashville. Then we could reach out to them to him. Now you got here. You arrived here five years ago. What was your experience like? Uh, when I got to Nashville, I, I, one of my cousins was here. So I was with him for two weeks in an apartment of one room. It was very tough because uh, I didn't have nothing. And I was communicating with my caseworker to please find a job as a place that I can live. And then after one to two weeks, uh, I was able to find a house. And the reason was that I did not have any credit history. And also uh, there was no house place to uh, to find even we were seeing some empty spots there but we had to wait what the RAs are doing and what their process was now you help a lot of folks with their resettlement journeys how is it different for people you work with now as compared to when you first got here uh, it is the same I don't see much different uh, because that time they were asking also for, uh, to be honest, the first time uh, it was a little bit loose. So they were just asking for somebody to just uh, be in place and then uh, introduce a new neighbor to the neighbor. Uh, but right now they don't do it. So it is just you and your credit. So if you have a good credit, you are getting a house. If you do not have a good credit, you are not. But five years back, even if a neighbor was going to the uh, apartment uh, office and they were talking to them that this is my neighbor, this will be my neighbor, and I guarantee that he will pay uh, the rent on time. And they would consider that. But right now it's very strict. Mm. You know, a lot of people thought that housing prices were high five years ago, but those costs keep on going up. I believe me, I can tell you that. I've only been here eight months, but that's something that I know for true. You know, Salim, how have you seen this really affect our refugee communities in particular? The effect of, um, yeah, uh, to tell you one story of one of the guy that the other day I talked with him and uh, he was told that he, he'll be working. So he told me, Salim, I'm working in an off, uh, in uh, their house and I did not work this in the past because I was a military person back home. And now this money that I, I'm getting is less than what I'm paying. I'm paying $2,400 and my total income is $1,800. Now, my decision is to leave Nashville because I cannot afford it and I will have to leave it, which is a tough thing. And then the same thing will happen with some of the other families when their their government aid is and will end. So, uh, yeah, that is a big issue that we need to address. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about the lack of affordable housing in our town and how it's hitting our refugee communities especially hard. As Matala Hananzi is still with us, you know, you came here from Afghanistan last fall, and you're a father. How many kids do you have? Uh, so I have a seven kids, you know, especially Afghanistan people are have a lots of kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a seven kids. Uh, my older one is a 14 year old and I have a twins. They are almost 16 months old. Uh, wow. So other five are all of them in the school. Just the twins are living in the house with the head man. Uh, so that's all. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> a lot of kids. You're very, very busy. Yeah, I'm very busy. Especially uh, right now, I was start the work also. I'm working uh, like after uh, 3 p.m. I was going to the work. Like from 4 p.m. I was start the work up to midnight, like 12:30 or 1 1 a.m. Uh, but my wife was she was busy with the kids. She's caring of the kids. Yeah, that's that's all. <laughs> how, how have your kids been during this transition? Uh, they are good. They are good. They're just. just uh, Like all of them in the school now, uh, that's the good things. Uh, so they're at all they're happy now that day by day they they will be get better because you know they they have a problem about the language and mm-hmm. they don't know the English. And one more uh, uh, big problem is that at, here in Nashville, uh, which is I hear from my kids in the school, most of the people are speaking Spanish. They say oh, we can learn the Spanish first. We need for to learn the English or okay. Spanish. That's that's the deaf situation for them. Yeah, you know I understand that you had a son who had got sick and you had difficulty finding help. Will you tell me about that? And so now, not my son actually. It was my wife. Yeah, uh, when we are we are in the hotel, uh, actually she was going to the in the dep- in, in, in the depressions. You know, mm-hmm. then she was get sick also. Uh, but I'm, uh, I like to say thanks from my caseworker. She's name is Hannah. Uh, at uh, like at 8 p.m. I was called here. We need for your help. How you can help me? Uh, she told me if is it an emergency, we can send the ambulance. Other way, if she can wait for half hour, uh, I will be come there. And then I told him, yeah, we can wait for you. Uh, she was came. Then she was take us to the emergency hospital. We are spend almost like three or four hours over there. Uh, so, it's uh, not too bad, uh, but which is I see here in the emergency hospital also, they, they didn't care about the sex too much, like about the patient, they, 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 they say stay wet, stay wet, wet, because when someone is in an emergency, they have to, be, that's the emergency hospital, they have to be care of the person very quickly, because yeah. when they bring it to the emergency, maybe it was in the emergency, mm-hmm. they told us stay wet, wet, for a long time we spent wet over there. And at, uh, at, at, at the end of the result, they told us they didn't need for the medications, but especially she was in the depressions. So we will be giving them a little bit of medication, not too much. Uh, they need to care, most of their cares. Is she, is she doing better? Oh, yeah, now she's okay. She, they better because... Uh, Uh, that's good news. We have a lot of Afghan uh, refugee here now. We know each other. Uh, we can go to the their family and, and especially uh, I like to thanks from Mr. Selim Khan because uh, he was trying to help us to, to introduce us with the other Afghan people, families, and this, that, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now she's good. Now. Salim, tell me more about that. How you were able to help Esmatola and his family? Ah. Uh, Uh, when when I uh, saw him on that apartment building, that what I did, uh, there was also uh, other Afghan families living together uh, in Alfred Park, American extended uh, hotels there. Uh, then what I did, I was talking with all, and then uh, I told them that let's meet your uh, neighbor uh, who's from Afghanistan, and he also uh, got here with you guys. So then I introduced them, uh, and then we met, 
that uh, we remove that gap and make a bridge between uh, those uh, new families together. And then um, we asked them to get together uh, on some special events like yesterday, it was Eid day. So we invited all these families back to, um, uh, to Ashan City. Uh, we prepared with the help of EMAC, uh, the transportation, uh, and then uh, we got these families there and they were meeting with each other and they were talking with each other. I do remember a family that he told me that said, help us with in this ETH, uh, just take my kids if you cannot take me. Mm. Uh, because they are bored, they are at home for eight months with mm, seeing no parks here in Nashville. Said, okay, no, we are we are doing our great. So then I reached out to Jerry volunteers, uh, Jerry drivers, and then uh, to AMAC also to, to help pay for for the gas and stuff like that so we took them and also that was with coordination of the afghan community here in nashville so salim tell me why is it important for people who have recently resettled here to be around neighbors who have similar backgrounds uh the uh the the problems that the culture uh the culture differences the culture back home is different with the culture uh, here in u.s so when they get here uh so we can uh, expect them to change the culture in a, in a day or two, probably they will adjust, but it will take a little bit of time. So they prefer to talk in their own language uh, and then uh, which they both can uh, get the understanding of each other and they can communicate with each other. Now, if if a neighbor is speaking English in, and I do not speak English, so it will be hard for me to to talk to to the neighbor, uh, but if if it is speaking my own language, then it will be very easy for me to talk to to them if I do not uh, understand English. So that was one of the important thing that we wanted to to get rid of the depression. Some families went uh, to the depression, and we tried to to to, to remove that. As Matala, you said you found a home. Where did you end up? Uh, so yeah, that's uh, uh, here in the uh, NS Road. Uh, I also happy from the ne- neighbors over there. Also, they they are very good people. Uh, uh, I will be share one uh, one of my story. One day, me and my two sons are walking to the Kroger stores for mm-hmm. the groceries. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at the one old lady, she was working in front of the, her house. Then I was send my son, please ask from here if he gave us the way for a sh- for a shortcut on her house. We can go. Uh, to the Kroger by that way or no? Uh, when she say my son, she's come to me and ask me, what do you want? I'll, I told her, yeah, we want to, if you give us the way, but that way we can go shortly to the Kroger store. If you go by the road, it's too long, like almost 19 minutes walking. Oh, wow. If you go if you go by your house, that will be very short, like five minutes. Uh, and we don't have a car, we are new here. Oh, then she is very helpful. She told me, yes, why not? Of course, you can't go by that way. And uh, my husband is right now not here at house. When he's come back, I will be sharing your house address, everything. If you need for the car or for any help, just let us know and call me. I will be helping. But that's all. At all, I'm very happy from the local people. But only I have a complaint of on the owner of the house and apartments because they are asking about the credit story and give, they give us the house very in the in very high rents. That's that's not easy for us, you know. In the yeah. Especially Salim was also mentioned that um, like when I was working, 
at all and end of the month maybe my income is like uh, 1800 or 2000 and i will be share my house story i, I already uh, rented like 1900 only for the months for the months that's the rent mm-hmm. without the electronic money or other energy monies it doesn't it's, leave much yeah it's leave much almost like 2400 it's it's not easy for me yeah to give that uh, yeah so tell me i mean what kind of help would you like to see being given to families like yours when they arrive here? Uh, so, like uh, from the government or the from other peoples? Help in general, government, other peoples, all of it. So, I would like to say thanks from the government because they are uh, uh, help us and USA government is uh, not only for, for the Afghan refugee, they have a lot of more uh, refugees from other countries and uh, they are working very hard. Uh, we are happy from the USA government uh, and also, but we are, uh, which is I say, which is I was here from other Afghan people, they are have a problem uh, with the agencies. Uh, uh, they cannot find the house for them and especially that's the, the big problem is the housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's all problems. Uh, but I, I would like to tell to the, my Afghan people also, they will be staying the patient because that's the role of uh, love, the USA. We have to be follow the love, the USA. Uh, so we are respect to the law uh, and we are waiting here. We have to be in the patient because if anything is happening, they, they try to do our, their best for us uh, and we are also will be in the patient. And I would like to say to the uh, agency people also, because like the, some Afghan people are, they, they spend a very bad situation team in Afghanistan in the, in the war when they are coming. You, you maybe you guys say say that all of uh, problems in the airport and in the Kabul, everything. Mentally, they are not good now. You know, mm. if they say something wrong, please forgive them. Yeah, because they didn't spend that good time in the way. Almost like me, I was spent the six months in the way from the Kabul up to the USA. I was spent the fifteen days in the Qatar. Then we are the flight to the Spain. I was spent the two months in the Spain. Then they, we are came to the USA. I was spent the two months in the uh, Fort Pickett camp. After that, I was spent the two months in the hotel. That's not easy. Yeah. Six months on the way in the travel with the kids, with the whole family. And even we don't have any clothes or anything mm-hmm. because we are leave the country in a very bad situation. So that's all. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you very much yeah, for coming you. on to the show and sharing your story, my friend. That is Esmatala Hananzi. He was here with Salim Tahirdi with Tennessee Resettlement Aid. I want to thank you both again for joining us. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore how rising costs affect other aspects of life for our immigrant communities, like education and finding work. And we'll consider solutions with a few local advocates. So tweet us your questions for our local panel at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colona, and this is Nashville. As we've been hearing, rising housing costs and displacement affect our communities in a variety of ways. 
In the first installment of our housing series here at WPLN News, we're considering how that issue is hitting our immigrant and refugee communities especially hard. WPLN's Alexis Marshall produced the first story in the series, and she joins us now. Lexi, welcome to This is Nashville. So for your story, you spent a lot of time with one immigrant family that was displaced from their Dickinson Park Pike mobile home last year. Here's Jose Ricardo Bologna talking about how this affected many aspects of their life. Hay que manejar mucho. Por ejemplo, si yo quiero comprar a cualquier tienda, tengo que manejar como de 10, 15 minutos a cualquier cualquier tienda que yo vaya. En cambio, en el 15-11, Dickerson Pike, todo era más accesible, todo tenía, teníamos la tienda al lado, teníamos el autobús afuera, afuera casi de la casa, de las trailers, del parking lot, teníamos la escuela, la vendería, todo era más accesible. Aquí es, está bonito, aquí, aquí es bonito, muy tranquilo, pero todo queda muy lejos. So, Jose is saying that his home in East Nashville was near his son's school. Mm-hmm. stores, the bus, all sorts of things important to his life and access to daily life. How does that change now that he's been forced to move? So, yeah, he was saying that, you know, now everything is at least 10 or 15 minutes away. And I mean, he also drives a pickup truck, so that adds up on gas costs. Um, but just whereas everything before was super accessible for him and most of that stuff was walking distance, he's now driving and and that makes a big difference in his day-to-day life. So Lexi, you know, how did Jose's children adjust to this? Has it been tough on them? Yeah. So one of his children is not in school yet, but for the one who is, he's eight, he's in third grade, and he had to leave the school that he'd grown up in halfway through the academic year um, and moved even to a different school district. So he had been in metro schools. Now he's in Sumner County schools. Um, And and that adjustment was hard for him. He said that he lost all of his friends. Um, You know, the one the one bright side here is that they were able to find a mobile home in a park where there was already some family there. So he does have a couple of cousins in the new park um, who he would have already known. Um, but it has been hard. He lost a, a lot of his friends, and that's a big adjustment for children. That's a really tough thing to be in third grade and lose your buddies, particularly in the middle of the school year. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to welcome my next guest, Clint Wilson. He's the principal of Glencliff High School, which has the highest number of immigrant students at any metro high school. Clint Thanks for being here. Um, Thank you for having me. So you see situations like this, like the ones we're hearing about often. What happens to students from immigrant families when they're forced to move schools? A lot happens at that point. Um, Often when kids leave, um, credits don't always go with them. So if you're talking a student that's been in a school in the high school level for a year or two, Sometimes they lose credits going to another county or another district, even if, even if it's just that 10 or 15 minutes down the road, moving to another county. Um, as spoken earlier, you know, they're losing their friends, that community that they've started to become a part of. Um, they understand how that school works. And when you go to another school, you're having to relearn all that. How does the cafeteria line work? Where do I go to get this service? Who can, prov- who can provide me that? Um, these teachers that I made, you know, a close connection to, I'm having to restart. So when kids are mobile, they're continually just kind of refiguring out 
the world around them at that time. And the, as you stated, changing schools are very difficult. But then there are also solution, situations where you know students have pretty big gaps in their education. So can tell me, how have you adapted your programs to help children of these families keep up? That's that's a big thing that Metro has really worked hard on the couple, last couple of years. Um, we have a lot of students recently coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and many of them have not been in school three, four, five, some of them eight years. Mm. And then they show up in Nashville and they're 16, 17 years old and they're going to school. So you've got a eight year gap in some of these students from their native country to a U.S. school. So we have a program called SIFE which is students with interrupted formal education. And so those students are eligible to go in and it's a year long English language immersive um, classrooms. We have four teachers that the kids rotate through and they're trying to learn as much English as they can in that year before they mainstream to the rest of the school. We also have a program called Real, which has recently arrived English learners. So those are kids that might've been in school last year in their native country but they're coming to the U.S. So we're trying to figure out, do we have transcripts for these kids to give them credits? Um, so we put them in the Real program and they're able to give it a few credits, especially if they're coming in late in the year, because a lot of these kids don't start school in August. We have kids enrolling today that are first time freshmen and we've got them for a month. So we got to figure ways and get creative to figure out how to get them credits and get them moving toward graduation. Now, do all Metro schools offer these programs? They don't, um, but students have access to all these programs. So, for example, for my school at Glencliff, we take Scythe kids from Antioch Zone and from Agavic Zone. And then Hunters Lane in North Nashville takes kids from Stratford, Maplewood. So kids have access and Metro does provide transportation for students in that Scythe program. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking about the lack of affordable housing and displacement in our town and how it's affecting our immigrant communities. I'd like to welcome Cecilia Prado into the discussion now. She is the executive director of Workers' Dignity. Cecilia, thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So, you know, this is an issue. It's not just as simple as needing affordable housing, right? No, I mean, I think affordability is only one part of the equation. I think that, I mean, we know anybody who's tried to get housing in Nashville knows that there's uh, multiple barriers, uh, starting with credit, criminal history, and also immigration status. So since 2010, Workers' Dignity has focused on workers' rights, but you've recently <laughs> shifted to housing organizi organizing and developing tenants' units. Tell me, why did you all make that pivot? We couldn't not. Uh, mm. Workers are people and workers are tenants. Uh, workers are human beings with families and uh, issues that extend beyond their workplace. And, you know, our organizing model uh, tells us to prioritize the needs that our base, our base of constituents is prioritizing. So back in uh, May 2021, I received a phone call on a Friday morning. Uh, and that was one of the tenant leaders that developed the union at Mosaic Apartments in South Nashville. And he tells me, hey, uh, close to 90 families were getting evicted with a three-day notice over the phone 
uh, they're telling us that if by Monday we do not leave, they're going to bring the sheriff. And they're telling us that it was a government inspection that deemed our apartments uninhabitable. So obviously I just canceled all my meetings and I went there and uh, we couldn't just, we couldn't ignore it. Yeah. What happened? Uh, well, the government inspection was a lie. Uh, and if you look at the history of Mosaic Apartments and previous ownerships, they have a history of using inhumane intimidation tactics uh, to scare the predominantly uh, immigrant residents that live there. Uh, they, in the past, uh, previous ownership, previous management have collaborated with ICE to um, raid the apartments as a tactic to uh, evict tenants. Uh, this time it was uh, scare tactics and lies. Uh, it turns out that there was no such thing as a government inspection. Uh, it was actually a private contractor, which you know to this day we haven't been able to see uh, such inspection. Um, you know, we supported folks to organize, which is what we know how to do. Uh, developed the tenant union, put enough pressure on the owner from California, uh, and then the tenants were not evicted and were given two months of free rent and other concessions. So, you know, what type of protections can a tenant union provide? I think in a state with the weakest, some of the weakest tenant protections is one of the most powerful things that you can have, uh, we whether it's in the workplace or in an apartment complex, there is a very specific uh, power to leverage, right? If you're at work, that is your labor. That is something that the, your boss wants from you. If you are um, in an apartment complex, you have a lot of other neighbors with the same power that you have, which is you are paying rent. So when workers organize and form a union, you are literally building power. You know, I'm curious, aside from making housing more affordable, what else can be done? Like, are there additional avenues that can be explored? Yeah, so, you know, we have a, a solidarity committee at Workers' Dignity composed of the leaders at Mosaic Apartments and also uh, the folks at uh, Dickerson Pike that Alexis was talking about earlier. The, they realized that, hey, we can keep fighting these fights for the, long for the longest time, but, you know, that's not going to fix Nashville housing crisis. And then what is going to fix it, right? Because we, we keep saying, hey, we need, to afford, we need to invest in affordable housing. And that's true. The city does need to invest uh, in the kind of infrastructure necessary to keep up with the growth instead of just keep giving uh, giveaways to corporations that are just coming here to gentrify and uh, bring jobs, bring bring people from other uh, places instead of actually employing our people here. But also, it's not just investing, but how are we investing in affordable housing? Because what we know is that most of the money that goes to the Barnes Fund, uh, which is you know the affordable housing fund here in Nashville, is going to the same uh, affordable housing developers that, yes, they can finish a project very quickly, but they're not really... Um, addressing the power imbalance at the root of the problem, right? We need to invest in uh, models of affordable housing with us actually have agency, like, you know, a cooperative land trust that keeps the land affordable while uh, the actual management be 
um, conducted through a housing cooperative of residents where residents actually have a say in how the everyday looks like. Lexi, I'd love to hear from you here. You talked to a lot of people who are working on solutions. What did you find? You know, I, I think that I actually was speaking more with, with folks who were seeing all of the different ripple effects of this issue. So so I spoke with folks who were, you know, experiencing either from the education side of things or from the tenant side of things, like how deeply this affects different people's lives. Um, I, and mostly it's been just dispersing folks into other counties from what I've found or, or, you know, some folks have, have doubled up, um, and begun living in in multi-generational households or, or just doubling up living quarters. Um, I I think Cecilia is probably, um, more qualified to talk about the, the, the solutions that she's seeing in the realm and, and potentially things that, um, our principal guest, uh, may be seeing as well. Clint, you know, I'm curious on our education system. How can that assist to create more equitable and affordable housing solutions for our communities? That is a big challenge. Um, as she mentioned, we have families that I've worked with that are renting living rooms from other people in apartments. And as a school, we have family resource centers where families can come and we can connect them to community resources. Um, try to find them maybe temporary housing within the school's family, other families that might have places to live. So really building a network of what's available um, to anybody that's looking for housing as they're transitioning um, between apartments or um, transitioning between hotels that are weekly or monthly as well. You know, Lexi, when you were talking to these folks and reporting your story, did anybody mention like things that they would wanted to, wanted to hear from the city? And what they wanted to see from the city to be done to kind of help with affordable housing. I, I think that especially referring to uh, Ricardo Bayona, who I spoke with, um, he didn't really have anything to say necessarily about the city. I think that he was more dealing with the immediacy of his situation. You know, he he was part of that tenants union. He got some compensation and, um, you, you know, the city council did hold off on voting on rezoning until after a a settlement had been made. So um, I've spoken with an expert who said that that's really powerful, having that time to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for him, he was really concerned with just, you know, doing what was best for his family. I I don't think that he necessarily had anything specifically to say about um, city services or, or things that city government could do to improve this issue. He was kind of in the middle of that emergency situation of just taking care of the necessity and the need at the moment. Yeah, and when you get an eviction notice or or you hear, like, you have to move by this date, that, mm-hmm. that can be kind of all-consuming. Clint, what about you? What would you like to see from the city? Uh, definitely time. I had 22 mm-hmm. students that were involved in the Mosaic apartment um, situation. And they find out three days they've got to move. So putting in some practices that you have to give X amount of time for students, for families to find somewhere to live and not just tell them that, but provide them resources, connect them to a local agency of here is somebody you can talk to to get the resources you need. And we're going to give you time 
to use those resources to get where you need to be. And I think a lot of people would say that it seems that developers and property owners have a considerable amount of power to displace people. C Cecilia, to answer this for us, what would you like to see the city do to increase protections for tenants? I would like to change the way that the city um, invests in affordable housing. I would like the city uh, put money into cooperative land trusts and uh, share equity, like housing cooperative models of housing uh, and of different solutions. I would like the city to also um, have more oversight on the way that different affordable housing developers are treating their tenants. Um, yeah. Is I mean, I heard that Chicago teachers uh, went on strike for affordable housing, right? So those are all things that are possible. Is it a matter of convincing the state to change some of the laws and regulations that are on the books? I, you know, I think so, but we cannot keep scapegoating the state every single time. I think that the city also has uh, some things in their within their power to do. For example, you know, you I would love to see the Barnes Commission to. Um, get a little bit more creative and uh, out of the box in the way that they're uh, awarding the the Barnes grants for affordable housing, right? You know, I, I have been in conversations with some of them, and the truth is, is that you know Nashville has never doesn't really have a trajectory of experimenting with alternative solutions and alternative projects of affordable housing, especially those where uh, tenants are sharing uh, the equity. 30 seconds left. What would you like to see? Tell us what you're working on. Right now, uh, we are, our folks are from the tenant uh, campaigns are organizing into a solidarity committee. They're trying to work with different churches who have a lot of available and unused land to start a model uh, for a cooperative land trust and housing cooperatives uh, and be able to show the city how it could be done. And hopefully um, that can lead to uh, reproducing the model across Nashville. That is Cecilia Prado. She is executive director of Workers' Dignity. She was joined by Clint Wilson, principal of Glencliff High School and WPLN morning producer Alexis Marshall. Thank you all for being here with us today. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, the legislative tomorrow, sorry. Tomorrow, the legislative session wrapped up last week. Our political reporter, Blaze Ganey, will join us to break down what passed, what didn't, and what that means for us. Plus, we're going to dig into the scathing report about mistreatment of youth at the Wilder Youth Center in Fayette County. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our musical theme are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. And let me know if I pronounce Fayette properly. I know that that could be a thing sometimes. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>